Mr. Welch. Uh, thank you. I say to my colleague, I'd be glad to have uh, the, the person who started it all come in and testify. Uh, President Trump is welcome uh, to take a seat right there. <laughs> that was Democratic Congressman Peter Welsh of Vermont offering one of the few humorous moments in an otherwise sobering day of testimony from U.S. Ambassador Bill Taylor and State Department official George Kent about President Trump's Ukraine shenanigans. After Taylor and Kent laid out how military aid to the Ukrainian government was being held up because of Trump's demands for an investigation into his political rivals, Republicans tried to poke holes in their stories. It's hearsay, they argued. Taylor and Kent had never even met or spoken to the president. A reasonable argument, perhaps, save for the fact that Trump's White House had blocked all those who did have firsthand knowledge Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, from testifying at all. Not to mention, of course, the man who started it all, President Trump himself. But as compelling as Taylor and Kent were, and with a half dozen more witnesses slated to testify over the next week, the big question remains. Is it enough to move a clear majority of the American public to support the removal of the president from office? We'll discuss with two key House Democrats in the middle of the battle, New Jersey Congressman Tom Malinowski, a former top Obama State Department official and now a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and Debbie Dingell, one of the wise heads of the House who represents a district in the crucial swing state of Michigan on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I do have to say it was kind of rich to hear the Republicans uh, attacking Taylor and Kent, saying it's all hearsay, they didn't have any firsthand knowledge, when it's the president himself who stopped them from getting the testimony of anybody with firsthand knowledge. Yeah, look, we're not expecting Donald Trump to testify in uh, in these hearings. Not um, that we'd get anything like <laughs> full, what, candid, truthful testimony. But what a show uh, it would be. As he yeah. might say, the ratings would be amazing. <laughs> That's true enough. <laughs> but look, I mean, go back to Watergate. I mean, all the president's men, they testified, right? You know, uh, yeah. John uh, 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 Ehrlichman and Bob Haldeman. And, absolutely. And, and, John you know, Dean. John Dean, right? right? They all testified. And it just goes to show that, you know, we are in a very different era when um, these kinds of proceedings are just not respected in the way that they were back then. I will say the Democrats did get some good news on this front, which is uh, in Bill Taylor's testimony yesterday, in which he revealed a telephone conversation between Gordon Sondland and President Trump, in which uh, Trump was asking about the investigation into the Bidens. And Taylor's aide, David Holmes, a counselor at the embassy in Kiev, was listening into that conversation. Right. So that conversation between Gordon Sondland and Trump, Sondland, who will be testifying next week, that is firsthand testimony 
Well, it is it's certainly closer testimony than what Taylor well, no, gave. He, well, I'm, I'm talking about when Sondland testifies next week. Sondland, it is a yes. firsthand account of his conversation with the president exactly. of the United States, putting the president right in the middle of this request for right. investigation to the Biden. And so the that exact is important. Words, the exact words that Taylor used to describe what Holmes, his aide, told him that Sondland said was that the President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden. Right, and which which undercuts a significant part of the Republican defense at the right. first hearings, which was that uh, this was not about the Bidens. This was about corruption. The president was interested in, the, in corruption and dealing with that you know, yeah. larger problem. No, yeah. this is really about the Bidens. Exactly. Now, I do think the Republicans did, you know, score some points at various times. I mean, they're the general drift of at least the initial questioning and comments from Devin Nunes and Steve Castor, you know, went into some of these conspiracy theories about Ukrainian interference in the election and uh, the role of CrowdStrike. Uh, and we'll get into that in our discussion with Tom Malinowski, who has quite a bit to say about that. But on the question of the military aid. And we've talked about this. Uh, I think we talked about it yesterday. You know, the question of when the Ukrainians learned about the military aid. And I think that's and if they didn't know until the end of August, when the Politico article comes out, that does raise questions about whether the quid pro quo at the time of the phone call, the July 25th phone call was clear to President Zelensky. Um, yeah. And there's uh, going to be I think key testimony coming up from some OMB officials who would have been in the middle of that that may shed some light on that question. Um, I also think the biggest victory for the Republicans yesterday was just posing a very kind of simple question, which really relates to how the American people out there will see this whole story. And, you know, they said sort of over and over again, despite you know, all the accusations here. The Bidens were not investigated by the Ukrainians, and the military assistant was released. It, so, it was so, released after the White House got so caught. So as some people have said, <laughs> yeah. right. But some, as caught some people red-handed, they know the whistleblower's complaint yes, is about to be released. Right. right. But just yeah. as a kind of a simple talking point yes. that, you know, kind of average Americans out there can understand, I think it's a powerful kind of point that they made. And, uh, you know, as some people have begun to say, quid pro, so what? Right. Well, speaking of which, it does remind me of the best line I saw today, which I think comes from a Financial Times article, but I saw it tweeted by Bill Crystal. You raised Watergate before. The difference between then and now during Watergate, President Nixon's line was, I am not a crook with President Trump. It's more along the lines of, I'm a crook, so what? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. I think uh, uh, is uh, perhaps a metaphor for the times we're in. But we got a lot to get to with two really good guests. So uh, let's get on with the show. Okay, we are now joined by Congressman Tom Malinowski, a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a freshman member from New Jersey. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Happy to be on the show. So Speaker Pelosi just said that the testimony on Wednesday from um, Ambassador Taylor and uh, George Kent corroborated evidence of bribery. You've listened to all the testimony as... A member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, you were there yesterday. Do you agree? And if so, why? 
I agree. And as everyone will see later this week and next week, every witness will corroborate the same story that the president of the United States acting through Rudy Giuliani and Ambassador Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, consistently over a period of several months, pressed the government of Ukraine using every tool of American foreign policy to interfere in our 2020 but election. Explain why this is a case of bribery. The United States Congress appropriated money to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia, almost $400 million, completely bipartisan, by the way. Republicans, Democrats, in 100% agreement that this money is being sent in America's national security interest. Donald Trump decided, I'm going to use that money to get something, not for the country, not for America, but for his own personal political interests. So, Congressman, most Americans uh, really started, I think, tuning in, in in large numbers for the first time yesterday because these were the first public hearings. The Republicans spent a lot of time trying to deflect against these, these uh, accusations. And even the things that we know are true, suggesting that at the end of the day, it's just not all that important and the conduct was not that bad. Can you just explain to people. You're someone who has a deep background in American uh, foreign policy. You spent a lot of time traveling, talking to foreign leaders. You care a lot about our relationship with Ukraine. Try to explain why the American people should really care about this. Why is it so important? And why is it the kind of abuse of power that that suggests that the president should forfeit his his office? So I will make the case to you that Ukraine is important and that it's important to our national security. But before I even go there, let me, let me make a much more fundamental point about abuse of power. I- imagine your house is on fire and you call 911 and the dispatcher says to you, oh my gosh, your house is on fire, that's terrible. We'd love to help, we need a favor though. Imagine you're trying to put your kid in school and the principal says, well, you live in this district. You, you seem to have a really wonderful child. We'd love to educate them. We need a favor, though. And at every stage of our interaction with the government, there's a, a quid pro quo. There's a favor demanded in exchange for a service that's supposed to be in the public interest. So exploiting, that's what this is about. exploiting a weak and vulnerable ally whose house was on, on fire. Yes, yeah, so this is not a 911 call, but it's a country that's on fire. And we have decided, rightly or wrongly, we have decided, Republicans, Democrats, the Congress, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, that it is in America's national interest to help Ukraine defend itself against a Russian invasion. I think it's a good decision because we learned in the Second World War what happens to the world when big powers are allowed to invade smaller countries with impunity. But we decided we're going to help Ukraine. That's money that we provided to the president for this purpose. He is not allowed to take that money and use it for a different purpose, namely his own personal political interest. Help me get reelected. Let me take up a couple of the Republican points that they're making to sort of poke holes in your argument. And 
one of them is the fact that it is the suspension of the military aid that is the most serious matter here. You use the analogy of Ukraine's house being on fire. This was military aid to help them fight Russian aggression. You remember the Obama administration, and that is the same administration that refused to provide the very military aid that President Trump suspended for you know, a month or two here. How do you argue that this is so serious that President Trump cut off for a time this military aid that the administration you worked in refused to provide at all? So the Obama administration did provide a lot of Ukraine. But not aid lethal Ukraine. assistance, not javelin anti-tank tank missiles, which were at issue here. Not the only thing at issue. That's So the javelin missiles were being sold to Ukraine. That's not actually part of the $400 million. But setting that aside, look, I'm a Democrat who worked for the Obama administration. And I would, I'm absolutely happy to say the Trump administration's policy towards Ukraine was even better than the Obama administration's policy. I completely supported their decision to sell these anti-tank missiles and to provide more lethal military assistance. The problem is not that Donald Trump has no right to, to suspend that aid. He, he does. He, he has a right to make what foreign policy decisions he wants, just as Obama did. The problem is he's not allowed to make those decisions in his personal political interest. He's not allowed to use aid or the, the offer of a meeting with the president of the United States in the Oval Office. He's not allowed to use those things to extort a foreign country into helping him politically, into investigating his political opponents here in the United States. No president has ever done that. We can't think of a single but, but instance. But you do acknowledge that there's an awkwardness there to make this the focus of the impeachment, the, the suspension of military aid that people in the Obama administration argued vociferously for, and the president, with the backing of his national security advisor, said, no, we don't want to antagonize the Russians. We don't want to escalate what's going on. So we're not going to do it. Yeah. Interestingly, Joe Biden argued vociferously for this military aid. And every time Republicans criticize President Obama for for not providing lethal aid on top of all the other support, we did provide Ukraine at that time. Every time Republicans criticize Obama for that, they are accentuating the importance of the assistance that President Trump withheld for corrupt reasons. In a way, they are making our case as to how much harm this decision by President Trump made, uh, did. So Ambassador Taylor yesterday testified that um, he did not know that the military aid was, or as far as he knew, the, Russian, the Ukrainians did not know that the military aid was suspended until August 29th when Politico wrote a story about it. And that's when he began to get calls from Ukrainian officials uh, uh, being concerned. So on the quid pro quo point, one of the Republican arguments is that if in the 20, uh, July 25th phone call, Zelensky did not know that the military aid had been withheld, how could that be a quid pro quo? And so I want to ask you, since you have um, sat in on pretty much all of the depositions so far with all of these witnesses who are coming forward, A, how do you rebut that argument? And B, is there any information forthcoming based on the uh, many interviews that you've sat in on that suggests that the Ukrainians may have known before 
August 29th and or before the uh, the July 25th phone call. So there were there were two forms of extortion here. Let's not forget. The first was that the Trump administration, well, President Trump, through his emissaries, told the Ukrainians that this new president, President Zelensky, would not get a meeting with President Trump, something very important for President Zelensky, unless he agreed to investigate Joe Biden and this conspiracy theory about Ukrainian alleged interference in 2016. So throughout this period, the Ukrainians are trying to get a meeting with President Trump, and they're being told no meeting unless you do these investigations. That's clear to the Ukrainians during the the phone call on July 25th. We're not sure when they first learned that the aid was also suspended. At the very latest, it was at the end of August when the Politico piece came out. There are some suggestions that they learned earlier than that. In any case, they did learn. And at that moment, uh, well, they were already under great pressure because they were trying to get the meeting. And once they learned that the aid was also at risk, the the degree of pressure uh, went up uh, considerably. So I, I don't get the Republican argument if, if, if it's, well, they didn't know at the time of the phone call. The, the we're not just talking about the phone call here. We're talking about a pressure campaign that went on for months. But at the time that President Trump says, I want you to do me a favor, though, Zelensky doesn't know that his aid has been suspended. At that moment, he knows that he's not getting a meeting with the president of the United States. He knows there is some problem in his relationship with President Trump. This has been conveyed to him. He also asks in the phone conversation about the javelins, which is a military sale, not aid provided by U.S. taxpayers, but a sale of military equipment that the Trump administration had to approve. And when he asks about these javelin missiles, immediately President Trump says, we need a favor, though. So it's very clear from the phone call that Zelensky understands Trump needs these two things. He needs these investigations for the relationship to go forward. Uh, Let's talk about your tweets about another one of the Republican arguments that the Ukrainians interfered in the 2016 presidential election on behalf of Hillary Clinton and against uh, Donald Trump. You have uh, done an extended uh, tweet storm on that issue. So uh, tell us why you take exception to that argument. We know what interference in our election is. It happened in 2016. The intelligence community, including the FBI, has documented what happened. We have prosecuted Russians for engaging in that interference. What did they do? They hacked the emails of American citizens, which is a a crime. Their intelligence agents posed as Americans on Facebook, posting Russian propaganda and sending it out to millions and millions of Americans. That's interference. That is a sustained operation conducted by the intelligence services of a foreign country to covertly and corruptly undermine our elections. Now, what do the Republicans say the Ukrainians did? They helpfully told us. They gave us three examples. Example one was an op-ed piece, an article published by the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States in 2016, in which he took issue with a statement that President Trump had just made. President Trump 
had just said that if he's elected president, he might recognize Russia's annexation of Crimea. And he said, well, those Crimeans wanted to be with Russia from the very beginning. And, and the, the ambassador of Ukraine said, that would be bad. <laughs> That's not interference in our elections. That's the Ukrainian ambassador doing his job and advancing the policy of his country. You know, like, you know, some, some candidate for prime minister of, of Great Britain said, if I'm elected prime minister, I will recognize California as part of Mexico because the Americans stole it from Mexico. I, I think our ambassador would be entitled to say, no, that would be bad. So that's one. The second example, there was a Ukrainian official who is now their interior minister who called President Trump a clown on his Facebook page. And okay, that's not very diplomatic. They shouldn't do that. <laughs> but come on, that's not interference in our elections. If that's interference, every country has interfered in our election because there are officials around the world who've, who, you know, who called Trump names and probably who called Hillary names too. The third example, very interesting, a Ukrainian journalist who specializes in anti-corruption investigations, kind of like you guys, published what is known as Paul Manafort's secret black ledger. Uh, it was a notebook that Manafort uh, kept allegedly that showed illegal payments he was receiving from Ukrainian politicians. Paul Manafort was engaging in corrupt acts in Ukraine. Our own Justice Department successfully prosecuted. I think, he, for right, him. I think he's sitting in federal I think prison he's in right now. <laughs> yeah, he's in jail. as a result he's of uh, that information. So this uh, is interference that the Ukrainians right. are actually prosecuting a crime conduct, yeah. com committed on their territory. Well, you're forgetting one, another example, which I happen to be peripherally involved in, which is Alexandra Chalupa, the, um, the DNC contractor who had met with Ukrainian embassy officials to get information, or as the Republicans would say dirt on Paul Manafort and then provided it to journalists such as myself. And uh, people have look, cited that as an example of uh, Ukrainian interference. Look, Manafort's actually in jail. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting that the Republicans keep pointing to the fact that, that Donald Trump's campaign manager is in jail right. for engaging in corrupt activities in Ukraine. Here they are going after Joe Biden for allegedly having done something wrong with Ukraine, which he didn't. And they're pointing out that, in fact, it was Donald Trump's campaign manager who is prosecuted by our own Justice Department for this. I don't think that helps them very much, but it certainly is not interference. I mean, what, but, but here's, the, here's the kicker. Like, if these are their examples, when Donald Trump was demanding that Ukraine investigate alleged Ukrainian interference in our 2016 election, what he is demanding is that their criminal prosecutors go after a, a former ambassador who is just advocating for their policy, somebody who published a dumb Facebook post, and their own, one of their own journalists who exposed actual criminality in their own country. They're not going to, these are not crimes. These are perfectly, these are totally protected activities. And, and to, to pressure Ukraine to investigate these things as crimes is in and of itself, uh, I think, outrageous. Walk us through the next uh, few weeks. Uh, we got another week of testimony, I think, from... Uh 
more than a half dozen, seven now, witnesses, uh, including the new one who emerged from the testimony yesterday, the aide to Ambassador Taylor, who heard Ambassador Sondland say what the president cares about is the Bidens. Thank you, sir. Um, David Holmes, I think uh, yeah, we it, now know his it, name. That's right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, so, yeah, walk us through the, the, the timeline as it looks to you right now. So this was new information that we, we got yesterday from Ambassador Taylor. He reported that his staffer uh, in Kiev met with Gordon Sondland, who, the EU ambassador through which much of this was being done, and that Gordon Sondland from a restaurant in Kyiv called President Trump. This is amazing in and of itself. Of course, the Russians are listening to this Not call. Not great OPSEC, <laughs> as, they, as they say. Um, and that the staffer overheard President Trump asking about the investigations again and saying, I just care about that. I don't care about anything else. Uh, if this is true, it's really interesting. Uh, we, we already know Gordon Sondland was the only official to brief President Trump before his phone call with President Zelensky. I can tell you that is really weird. Normally, when the president calls a foreign leader, there's a little huddle in the Oval Office. The, his national security team go over the talking points with him and say, boss, what do we want to achieve in this call? And here's why we want you to ask this. None of that happened, but Gordon Sondland speaks to Trump on the phone before the phone call. And now it turns out Sondland may have been the only person to speak to Trump after the phone call about how the Ukrainians were reacting to it. Very important. So we will have, we will depose uh, the aid. This is not a public hearing yet. Um, this will be just an initial interview to but that's see. that's happening on Friday. And that's happening on Friday. There. You'll be there? Uh, I will try to be there, yes. And then we will have public hearings continuing Friday and then through next week. So by the end of next week, the American people will have heard from essentially everybody that I've heard from so that everyone can judge. For so themselves. What, what happens from there? Does the committee do a report and send it to the judiciary? Correct. And how much time is that going to take? How quickly does this go to judiciary? When do you expect judiciary takes it up? Do they limit the articles to just the Ukraine matter? Or does it get enlarged to some of the Russia stuff, emoluments, other issues? Uh, and when does it go to the full house for a vote? Uh, our job uh, has been to find the facts through the depositions, which the Foreign Affairs Oversight Intelligence Committee undertook. Now the Intelligence Com uh, Committee is holding public hearings. We're just trying to figure out what happened. There will be a report that will be submitted to the Judiciary Committee. Articles of impeachment fall within the Judiciary's Committee's mandate. So at that point, the Judiciary will decide what to do. I think there is a strong sentiment among many of my colleagues that we should keep this simple. If we, if we investigated every potentially impeachable act that President Trump has committed, we'd be here past his first term. <laughs> we have something there here. There could be some political benefits to um, doing that. Uh, but we're, this ahead. is not, you know, the political benefit is a phrase that... That you're I, not going to use in public. No, <laughs> and honestly, we are, most of us, I think, are being very disciplined about not allowing it to infect even our private conversations. This is this is the most serious and somber thing that, that the House of Representatives can do. And... You know, as you know, many of us came out in favor of an impeachment inquiry 
at times when it was not necessarily obviously in our political interest to do it. So we want to make sure that, that it's done thoroughly, but it's also very important because, you know, our audience here, yes, it's partly the U.S. Senate, but it's also the American people. It's incredibly important if our goal is to establish that this conduct must never be repeated. It's extremely important that we persuade the American people of the power of our case. So the timeline. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we are on track right now to finish the, the public stage, the public hearings in the next couple of weeks, and then to move in December to potentially consideration of articles of impeachment. I want to get back just for a second to the impact all of this is having on Ukraine now, because we are all wrapped up in the uh, drama of impeachment, um, the political bombshells, uh, our domestic politics. But in the meantime, uh, Ukraine is still a weak country with a big problem, a house on fire, as you put it. And um, I believe uh, President Zelensky is going to be meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin in the coming weeks. What has this done to, to Ukraine's position as it deals with this continuing crisis in, in terms of their leverage moving forward? I fear that this has undermined Ukraine's confidence that the United States has its back. I'm glad that Zelensky wants to meet with Putin. We want to see diplomacy between Ukraine and Russia to end this horrible war that has killed thousands of people and to restore Ukraine's sovereignty. But for, for Zelensky to have any leverage in that negotiation, he needs to know that the United States will consistently back up Ukraine in its legitimate desire to remain a sovereign and democratic country. And you know what message have we sent in the last few months? That the President of the United States does not give a damn about any of that. His administration did. He had many good people in his administration who wanted to do the right thing vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, but he, over, he overruled them, pursued this drug deal, as John Bolton referred to it, and now many of the people who are executing that policy are either gone, as John Bolton is, as Kurt Volker is, or have been personally castigated by the president as never Trumpers, as his enemies. Our ambassador to Ukraine has been attacked publicly by the president. Colonel Vindman, the, the you know, extraordinary, dedicated, patriotic military officer who runs Ukraine policy at the National Security Council, has been publicly attacked by the president of the United States. So if you're a Ukrainian and you're talking to Ambassador Bill Taylor, does he speak for the president? How can you be sure? You know, I don't know what to do about that, except that the United States Congress has to step forward, not just through the impeachment inquiry, but to independently signal to Ukraine that we will continue to support them. And, and how should they do that? How should the Congress do that? And, and what should the president do uh, if he cares to uh, stiffen the resolve of, uh, of Ukraine? The president should make clear that he won't do it again, <laughs> that, this, that, that, that we are going to provide Ukraine with the assistance that it needs to protect itself against Russia, that we are, we are not going to sell them out, that we will back them up in any negotiations with the Russians, that the sanctions will remain in place. I have a hard time imagining Trump doing those things. We've been relying on his senior officials to deliver those messages. Many are gone, as, as I mentioned. I hope that they replace Kurt Volker soon. 
I hope that they hire a good senior director at the National Security Council to replace Tim Morrison, who's leaving. Uh, I hope Secretary Pompeo uh, makes clear that he's going to defend his diplomats and his department. Uh, I think Secretary Pompeo tried to do that for a while and then ultimately uh, gave in to, to Trump's pressure to fire his ambassador. He needs to defend his diplomats. And Congress, I think, you know, this is a time when we need to be passing re resolutions, legislation uh, that solidify our support for Ukraine. Do you think you can break through the public noise on all sides and persuade a clear majority of the American public that it is worth removing President Trump from office in an election year, which is when this will go to the Senate, especially when right now you've got no Republicans on your side? We will not know that until they have to cast a vote. And it's going to well, be. Well, they a, have already. They, they, they cast voted a procedural unanimously vote. against even having the inquiry. It's very easy for Republicans to unite around the slogan that Adam Schiff is being mean to us. <laughs> and I, I've spoken to Republicans here who've told me privately don't interpret my vote on that procedural resolution, on the process, as necessarily a vote against impeachment. We haven't made up our minds. I don't, really? ex I don't expect a lot of them to be with us, but, but I've been told privately that, that, you know, by some who are, who are genuinely troubled by what, how what many you think heard. you can get? I don't know. I'm not going to be crazy for me to, to predict. Look, it's, it's a pretty monumental vote because we are going to be asking them uh, and ourselves, is this okay? Is it okay for, any president to extort a foreign country to interfere in our elections. And if you vote yes, you're not just saying it was okay for Trump to do this. You're saying henceforth, a, a Democratic or Republican president can invite foreign countries to dig up dirt on their opponents, to manufacture sham investigations that, that they can then point to and say, see, my opponent's being investigated for a crime in China or in Russia. That's not okay, and, and I can't believe that the American people are going to think that that's okay. But, but during the hearings yesterday, did you see a single Republican member critical in any way of the president's conduct throughout this whole Ukraine episode? A number of Republican members have publicly said that if he held up aid— But, the, but I'm talking about at the hearing at yesterday. At the hearing, no. There was, there was one Republican who—, who who seemed very tortured and and asked very neutral sounding questions. <laughs> Will Hurd of Texas. Will Hurd. Who is yeah. retiring. But many Republicans, I mean, even Lindsey Graham at one point said, you know, if there was a quid pro quo, that would be really bad. So there, you know, the difference here is that we we are all united around a single message. We've been saying from the very beginning, this is simple. You do not extort a foreign government to interfere in our elections. And the Republicans have been all over the place. They have trotted out 15 different arguments in defense of the president, some of which have been completely discredited and so forcing them to move on to others. There's a lot of discomfort in the Republican caucus. And even if many of them vote against impeachment, that discomfort, I think, is um, visible to the American people as they watch these hearings. 
Last question. You're in a swing district. I think you won with 51% in uh, 2018. How's it playing at home? I've, I've uh, felt very strong support. The people who contact my office, the people who come to the many, many town halls that I have held uh, this year are overwhelmingly either in favor of this impeachment process or respectful that I'm doing what I believe to be right. And as long as I'm standing up for the people of New Jersey on the issues that affect our lives, transportation, making our trains work, getting our state and local tax deductions back, continuing the fight for affordable health care, as long as I'm doing that, and oh boy, I am, they are completely supportive of me also upholding my oath to protect the Constitution of our country. Tom Malinowski, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you. Debbie Dingle, welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be on with both of you. (laughs) Well, we've wanted to have you on for a long time. Obviously, topic du jour is impeachment. Did you watch the testimony yesterday? It was in committee actually doing other issues, which we also need Wait, to be doing. Wait, you did the people's work? I did the people's work. We were on important subjects, prescription drugs, vaping, maternal health care. But I did watch testimony later when I went home, read every article that I could, and watched people kind of scream at each other a lot last night yeah. on all the networks. So a few weeks ago, when the House voted to authorize the inquiry, you made it clear that you were you had not made any decisions about whether you thought the president should be impeached. You just wanted to follow the facts. We've had a lot of testimony since then that's now been publicly released. We had the first public hearings yesterday. Where are you right now on whether the president should be removed from office? I think that we're going to continue to follow these public testimonies. We need to hear from people. And I think it's very important that the American people see these hearings. I think this is a very sad time for our country. I'm worried about the division of people, how pitted against each other, how divided we are by fear and hatred. And I'm watching these hearings. I think we have to follow the facts. I don't think anybody is above the law. For me, probably what impacts me more than anything was a Republican-appointed inspector general investigating a whistleblower complaint, who, by the way, one of the things that bothers me the most is how Republicans are attacking a whistleblower who's very much protected by the law, which protects our national security. But then the inspector general found it to be credible, urgent, and of danger to our national security. That matters. But, Congresswoman, we we know a lot of the facts um, in this particular case, and you know more so than in uh, the, the Russia matter, which was the sort of sprawling story and, and uh, with a lot of kind of open questions. Um, here, we know what the president did. We know the outlines of the story. A lot of witnesses have come forward to confirm what was in the whistleblower complaint. So what is it specifically that you're looking for these hearings to answer before you can make a decision. So first of all, I'm waiting for the hearings to happen. I'm waiting for all of these witnesses to testify openly and publicly, transparently, and for the American people to hear what's happened. I did not come out last summer for impeachment because I am worried about how divided this country is. You know, if you read the Mueller report, 
that talk about how Russia is trying to divide us. And that's something we have to take into account. Though, it's not going to be a popularity contest about the decision that I ultimately make, but it's in the intelligence committee. They will make a recommendation, and then it will go to Judiciary Committee. And all of that is going to contribute to where I ultimately come out. So I think right now it's really important that we be transparent, but that the American people see this and that it takes us to where we go. You know, you, you mentioned your concern about how divided the country is. And there is an argument that impeachment is going to be only more divisive and is only going to be more disruptive to our the body politic. The president has a core base that is inflamed about this, that they are angry. So how do you navigate that? Is that an argument for you not to pursue impeachment? Nobody's above the law, and the rule of law is what keeps us together. But everybody keeps saying the Republicans will never vote for this, etc. You don't know, because we don't know what's going to come out. I'm not on those committees. I haven't heard some of the but, confidential. But look, the testimony has now been publicly well, released. Well, but I think we there are more witnesses coming. Dan but this says, is what I'm going to say to you. I worked for Bob Griffin. Yes, there was a day that I was young and a Republican, but a different, <laughs> in those days, it was called a Millican Republican. And I worked for Bob Griffin. I was young. I was in college, intern. But I flew back with him the day that he called Richard Nixon and told him he had to resign. And yet I watched all that stuff that whole period of time where Republicans weren't for that. The same kind of things that you're hearing today. And then suddenly, as more facts came out, there were surprises. We had a little surprise yesterday. We don't know what all the testimony is going to be. That's why you do have hearings. That's why you do call witnesses. And there's some witnesses that should be testifying that aren't, like Bolton, who would be a very important witness. So we don't know what the courts are going to order. We don't know who else is going to have to appear. But People are against until they see facts and then they change. And after Bob Griffin called, Senator Robert Griffin called Richard Nixon, he was resigned in 17 days. So that's why you have investigations. That's why you have open and transparent investigations. You all assume that people have made up their minds. I'll make up my mind when the process is done, when, the, when we know what all the facts are, and I see what the recommendations are by my colleagues that are on those committees. So you're known as a fairly moderate Democrat, kind of a wise head in the Congress, and I think you have a lot of friends who are on the other side of the aisle. I wonder, have you had a chance to talk to them about this issue? It clearly... None of them are publicly saying that they would vote to impeach the president. But do you have any indications at all that any of the Republican members who you know and have talked about might vote to impeach uh, this president? I've talked to a lot of them. A lot of them are disturbed by some of the things that they're seeing. They're people like Paul Mitchell, who is from Michigan, that voted against the moving forward with open hearings, voted the Republican way, but it was pretty honest and expressed his feelings to the White House about how disturbed he was by what was happening. Just the sheer number of Republicans that are resigning already this year shows you how people are bothered by what is happening in the system. I've appeared with some Republicans who are trying to navigate this carefully. And by the way, as you know, we may be talking about Republicans who are navigating this carefully, 
you know, Tom Starr bought 40 ads against me last summer. MoveOn.org targeted me. Mm -hmm. I have people now that are screaming, she hasn't made up her mind. How could she not make up her mind? I believe in due process. And I think that there are a lot of people struggling quietly but are trying to make sure our Constitution says we need to do it orderly, transparent, calm, not emotional. This is really serious stuff. This is about the future direction of our country. So is it conceivable to you that some number, however small, of Republicans could vote for impeachment and some number of Democrats could vote against impeachment? I not I think that there are some Democrats as a given that are going to vote against impeachment. Really? I don't know vote what against. that number against. is. Well, look at the Well, vote. there were two that yeah. voted against So the I don't inquiry. know what the ultimate number will be, yeah. but I think that's, I think there are Republicans that are struggling and I'm not going to speak for them. They're going to have to vote their conscience in the end. And I think that's a moral responsibility mm-hmm. we all have. You came around at the same time the speaker did. Right. After the revelations about the phone call that the president had with President Zelensky. Before that, during the entire Mueller inquiry, you were not a fan of impeachment. You were against. I'm deeply disturbed about how divided this country is. I think you have to take my focus on how divided this country is. And I know that Russia is trying to divide us. And subsequent to the Mueller report, which talked about how they are trying to get at the very foundation, we've had intelligence agencies from around the world talk about how Russia is trying to destabilize democracies, not only ours, but others around the world. And, you know, democracy isn't something that you can take for granted. I say this now as I'm ta- Veterans Day was just this past week and I was did multiple, like probably 20, 25 veterans events over the course of four days. And, you know, when we were in high school, college, studying, we took freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press for granted. I'm not sure we even understood what it meant to live in a country where you could say, whatever you wanted to say, and they couldn't come after you. But suddenly, those are concepts that you can't take for granted anymore. I live in a community where freedom of religion is really threatened. And even when I, so I've got, I live in the largest, the city I live in has the largest population of Muslims in the country. The, Dear, is that Dearborn? Dearborn. Yeah. Muslims have really been under attack, and under attack by this president just because of their religion. But freedom of speech is now under attack. I mean, you could almost throw the fact that a whistleblower following the law is being attacked because he exercised his right to say, I'm worried about what's happening to this country. You know, and you talk about freedom in the press, we all see what he's trying to do to the press. This is not, you know, go back to the Benjamin Franklin who said, you know, if you can keep this republic. And it's not just us. It's not just elected officials or people in the media. Everyday Americans need to be engaged. They need to care about what's happening in this country and not take for granted this democracy that we live in. Because we've had a democracy that has survived longer than almost any other democracy. And there are people that are really trying to destroy it. Does impeachment have to be divisive or is there any way that people like you can talk about impeachment, can act on impeachment, and find a way to transcend those divisions and talk about those kind of higher duties uh, that you've alluded to? I think impeachment by its very nature is divisive. That's a reality. I think there are people like me that are trying to talk about what it really means and what's happening in this country. I'm even uh, somebody who does all three 
cable networks, including Fox. And as soon as I do Fox, there are people that thank me for doing it. And I get a lot of hate. You know, phone calls to the office prepares. From back home? From back home, too? It's all over the country. But, you know, I love my district because it is a different, it's, it's got all kinds of people. It's why three years ago I said to everybody, Donald Trump could win, and you all thought I was crazy. But although I, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I yeah. was just going to say, because I, I wanted to switch gears and, and bring that up, because I remember talking to you at the Democratic convention in 2016 in Philadelphia when everybody assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win hands down, and you were raising some red flags, saying that in Michigan, the it was going to be a lot tighter than people imagined. So give us your keen political sense now of where things are in, in Michigan with those Trump voters in particular who helped elect them. So what I was going to say was, is that I have a district that has many different People that have a lot of different strong feelings, strong feelings being an operative word. And because I I really try to be out, I try to listen to people. I make a point of trying to go to a union hall every weekend to be downriver in Ann Arbor and to be all over the district. And I live in Dearborn, which is very different kinds of people. But right now, and people feel very comfortable coming up to me, talking to me and yelling at me. I don't, for the most part. I don't care if I'm yelled at because you know what people are thinking and they need to get it out of their system. There are a lot of very strong Trump supporters and there are a lot of very strong he needs to go supporters and they've all yelled at me. I think one of the most unique experiences was Michael Gnosis. I had breakfast with a group of very solidly conservative guys for 20 years and they were my friends. And about a month ago, six weeks ago, I was at the bagel place that we all meet and, you know, maybe 80 people in it. And the whole group broke down and deteriorated. And half the group was yelling at the other. There were people that didn't know me that after someone yelled at me came up to defend me. And it just deteriorated into people who didn't even know each other yelling at each other. I can't go there anymore. It's so intense. And it's really intense out there. And I think, yes, people have dug in and they've made up their minds. But I, I do think Donald Trump could win re-election in, right now. I, I don't think it's a given. I don't feel you like... Th- you think he can carry Michigan again? I think he could. I want to be really clear. I don't think it's, it's a long time. It is a year from now. And a lot of things could happen. But at the moment, it really depends who the nominee is going to be. And well, let's to... talk about that. Given how close you think it is, how high the stakes are... Look at this Democratic field. We now have uh, new entrants, Deval Patrick, this week. How do you break down the field, and who do you think at this point is saying the right things and doing the right things to, uh, to defeat Trump? I'm watching all of them. I'm seeing who's, how they do, because I was watching Hillary Clinton, and I knew we had a problem. Now, she won in your district d- handily, didn't she? Well, uh, she lost down river. Yeah, that's what people don't. I mean, I knew we were in trouble when I was going into communities and there were Trump Trump signs in every front yard. Like you'd see 20 of them down the street. But Ypsilanti, which is next to Ann Arbor in Washington County, is not a city that you would traditionally think of as supporting a Republican candidate. Mm -hmm. 
and I was seeing Trump signs in Ypsilanti. Mm. And I walked the picket line every weekend that I was home while the GM strike was going on. And there were members who were walking those picket lines who were voting for Donald Trump again, and they were very open about it. So I'm watching everybody. I'm seeing how they connect with people. I'm seeing how they talk about issues. We did a terrible job. I'm point blank about this. Said it right after the election, too. Said it before, nobody listened. We got to talk about issues that matter to working men and women across this country. You know, sometimes we forget about what those core issues are. And most voters don't want a lot. They want somebody to care about them. They want to be able to get a job, have a job, hold a job. They want to be able to live in a safe neighborhood. If they want to be able to educate their kids, they want to be able to afford food, to be able to eat. And if they're sick, to be able to go to the doctor. And they want to have a safe and secure retirement. Let's talk about the field a little bit. You have one front runner, um, Senator Warren. Who's your front runner? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm saying there's a number of front runners. Correct. You know, Warren, I'm Biden, not give you Buttigieg. That there's any front okay. runner right but now. Um, Warren, who's been a very clear backer of Medicare for All, and says yes, that would mean taking away private insurance plans from the UAW workers in your district who have plans that they like and negotiate at the bargaining table for, can you sell that to your UAW workers and other union members in Michigan? So first of all, you have to remember who you're talking to. So you're talking to somebody who's actually, my husband was the person that introduced Medicare for All every year since 1955. And I have been more involved in the healthcare system than many. I recognize that I'm luckier than 99 and nine tenths of the people in this country. And yet I've been in the total hell of the healthcare system in this country. Long-term care is totally broken. And I believe that every American's got a right to quality affordable healthcare. And I, I'm hands-on. I know how pro, I know healthcare inside and out from insurance plans to Medicare to Medicare for all. Do and you, I think a lot of the, pres- the Medicare for yes, all I do. proposal I have of the bill. Senator Warren and I, I, Sanders. I, I'm clo- I'm one of the two okay. co-sponsors of the Medicare for all bill in the house, which is the closest to Senator Saunders Sanders, but we have some differences. This is what I want to say. Half the candidates don't, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to, but they don't know how to talk about it. They don't understand the issues. And how many people think that their private insurance is safe? I mean, I am an active member of Congress, but I retired from the auto industry. If you are a salaried retired employee in the auto industry, you lose your health insurance at 65. Nobody has health insurance. And a lot of these plans, people forget that a decade ago, when industry started having going bankruptcy, that the cost of health care, and when we passed the Affordable Care Act, that the cost of health care was more than the cost of steel in an automobile. They forget that, and by the way, this president wanted to take away insurance for pre, with people for pre-existing conditions. I mean, literally a decade ago, if you had high blood pressure or diabetes, you couldn't get insurance. People forget how bad our health insurance plan is, and we can't go forward from that. We got Medicare in 1965. The first bill for Medicare for All was actually passed in the early 40s, or not passed, introduced. And by the way, 
my father-in-law was the first person to introduce it. And it took from the early 40s to get Medicare till 1965. And all the things that you're hearing about Medicare for all now are what everybody was saying about Medicare in the early 40s. But you got to know what you're talking about. You've got to get the facts. We don't, people should have the same health care that they have now. They shouldn't be worried that they're going to lose it. But we should want every American that have a right to affordable quality health care and never have to worry if they can afford their medicine or never have to worry about not going to the doctor because they have a lump in their breast. But even if they find breast cancer, they can't afford the treatment. That's not right. We shouldn't be doing it. And seniors shouldn't be not taking their pills or cutting a pill in half because they can't afford their medicine and they can't. Well, I got to say, it sounds to me like Elizabeth Warren <laughs> and Bernie Sanders need <laughs> Congressman uh, Dingle out there uh, on, yeah. the, uh, on the campaign trail making the case for that. Them. Because this is, you know, a lot of people see the polling out there, and it's a tough sell. But the polling was for it until people started talking about an issue that maybe, and it was all, I'm not nailing any one candidate. It's a very complicated subject. And until you've been in it, I've been that person that's taken her head and knocked it against a wall after I punched buttons for 12 hours just to talk to somebody about whether Medicare or insurance was the primary cover of the, the, the payer. And I know I've been inside the systems and I've seen what healthcare was doing to the auto industry, but I've also talked to small business owners who can't afford insurance but want to be able to give it to people. I've talked to people who are paying far higher than they used to for the premiums and their deductibles so high they can't afford again to go to the doctor. We got to fix a broken system and it's broken. You seem much more passionate about this than anything else we've been talking it about. It does matter to yeah, me, yeah. because we've got a broken system that needs to be fixed. But back to the politics, uh, presidential politics right now, there is unease among your Democratic There's colleagues about, a lot of people. about, There's about, about the, the field that we have right now, that, you know, uh, Vice President Biden, a lot of people like him, but... He's up there. There's questions about his age, stamina, Senator Warren for some of the reasons we just talked about, Mayor Pete, 37 years old, only been mayor of South Bend. You know, and people are talking about other people perhaps getting in. Bloomberg has signaled Deval Patrick. Do you would you like to see others get into the race? And if so, who? I have not made a decision. I'm watching every candidate and I will endorse when I know that there's a winner out there that's going to connect with the American people. Do you people. share the unease about the field as I it exists right now? I haven't endorsed anybody because I am going to be louder and more vocal than I was three years ago when I said we had a problem. And I'm waiting to see the candidate that's going to appeal to working men and women and talk about their core issues every single day. And not, by the way, fly over the Midwest. So tell us a little bit more about what that candidate needs to do, where that candidate needs to be, what issues that candidate needs to be speaking about beyond health care. Well, health care is obviously right. one of them but, for me. Yeah. But pensions, trade. By the way, it's, we did a terrible job as Democrats talking about trade three years ago. How the workers in my state have seen their jobs shipped overseas from a NAFTA that should never have passed and was flawed. And we never talked about trade and the jobs that got shipped overseas. How are we going to pay for young people's education? And by the way, not everybody needs to have a college degree. The fact of the matter is, can you imagine this world without plumbers or electricians or people that make our everyday lives go? We need to talk about those apprenticeships. We need to train. 
train people for the jobs of the future. We need to not be afraid of the future. We need to embrace it. As we go to a green economy, global climate change is real. We need to do something about it, but we need to train people to be ready for those jobs of the future that take us to a zero. On on trade, do you approve of some of the way President Trump has handled this in terms of imposing tariffs on on China and other countries? Is that the right way to address some of these trade imbalances? So he tweeted at me one day when he clearly wasn't listening to my whole answer because the fact of the matter is we need to do something about China. They do steal our intellectual property. They subsidize their goods. They manipulate the currency. But the problem with my problem with the president's trade policy, especially as it relates to China or even to Mexico, when he's using trade as a tool that it's not meant to be, is that it's all over the place. It's chaotic. It's not consistent. He doesn't talk to us. He doesn't show us what his policy is. I do think we need a new NAFTA, and I hope we're going to pass a new, I call it NAFTA 2.0. I don't use this, I want everybody to know we need a new NAFTA, but it needs to have enforceable labor standards. It needs to give the workers in this country a fair shake. But are you seeing evidence that Democrats running for president are speaking to working class voters in a way that you think resonates and are hearing their needs and articulating a message that will resonate with them? Are you seeing that? So I'm going to be careful because Don't be careful. I'm very honest. <laughs> no, no, yeah. And all these candidates are my friends. They're everybody who's running except for, you know, I know most of them and they've been good friends for a long time. You're about to say except for oh, Well, I'm not going to do that. that. <laughs> um, <Okay>. I was. <laughs> but they came to Detroit and nobody talked about trade. Nobody talked about manufacturing. We didn't, and I was pretty blunt about that. So at least when they went to Ohio, they talked about those issues. You mean at the debate? Yeah. You're talking about the debate. At the yeah. debate. But, you know, the problem is we have so, broken. So that concerns you? Yes. Well, it, quite frankly, you know that I tried very hard and I got caught up in all the politics again of changing the primary in the nomination system. So I think we have small states that don't reflect the diversity of this country that have way too much of an impact on the nominating process and that we, I swear to God, I was never going to touch it again, but I am because I think we don't, I think we need a fair system that every region gets an opportunity at some point to impact the outcome of um, this election. So they're focused on Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and the Carolinas instead of South Carolina, instead of, you know, at least talking about Midwest issues more than they need to. We don't have them really. There's not a state that has an urban area that's talking about there really is a divide in this country between suburban and rural areas. And even the suburban areas have, you know, people that have very different issues than other people. So I'd like to see I think they care, but I don't even think the way the primary nominating system is structured, they talk about the issues that they need to be talking about. You mentioned that uh, President Trump uh, had tweeted at you at one point, given that at least in there is uh, some parallel there between your position on trade and his. Has he ever reached out to you, talked to you, wanted to sit down? I have said to this, I mean, I said this three years ago, if it was going to be something that would hurt the people in my district, such as travel bans and anti-Muslim rhetoric. He would find a buzzsaw like one he's never met, and I've taken him on. We did, or a couple of years ago, talk about these issues. 
Um, he, one on one. Uh, he, he told Fred Upton I was much nicer in person than I was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, unfortunately, I and I've said this to, but I'm very close to a number of people on the Republican side and have said, you know, we should be talking about these issues. We need an infrastructure bill. We need to, there's so many issues. When we talk about the environment, we really need to be doing something. But he's just solely focused on the impeachment issue right now. And he promised the American people he'd lower the cost of prescription drugs. I met with the Secretary of HHS a couple of weeks ago talking about how are we going to lower the cost. We need to be talking about these issues and we need to be finding ways to work together because, by the way, we all made a promise to the American people we'd do something to lower the cost of drugs before this next election. And I think we have a moral responsibility to figure out how we can work together and do something about it. Well, here on this podcast, we are also very focused on the impeachment issue, but actually it's good to speak to uh, a member of Congress about some of these other issues as well. So we thank you, Debbie Dingell, for coming on Skullduggery. And we'll be following up with you uh, as you make your decisions about impeachment and who you're going to endorse for the Democratic nomination. I look forward to talking about that and many other issues (laughs) in these next few months. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks to New Jersey Congressman and former Obama State Department official Tom Malinowski and Debbie Dingell, Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.